Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host on February 1st, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, today my guest is UCI School of Education Distinguished Professor Greg Duncan, who will have this full hour to talk about an unprecedented collaboration, a study making the media rounds. You might have already heard him on some other stations. Baby's First Years is the study. It's showing a link between social safety net funding and improved brain activity in babies. And we'll continue to follow these kiddos till their fourth year. The early findings are published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and of the USA this, just this last month. UCI School of Education Distinguished Professor Greg Duncan will be up here and shortly. Stay tuned. I'm going to welcome you back to the show. So, Greg Duncan, UCI Distinguished Professor of the School of Education. He's part of a truly unprecedented collaboration on a study known as Baby's First Years. And along with this breakthrough work is his nuanced appraisals. They're published in Risky Business, Correlation and Causation in Longitudinal Studies of Skill Development, Persistence and Fade Out in Human Capital Interventions, First Things First, among other recently published items. Greg Duncan most recently serves on the National Academy of Science, the Understanding America Study at the National Institute on Aging, the Society for Research on Child Development, the Society for Research on Educational Effectiveness, First Things First National Advisory Panel, along with the National Research Council. And prior to his appointment at UCI in 2008, he held appointments at Northwestern University, as well as the University of Michigan, Chicago, and visiting appointments in Stockholm and Paris. In the interest of time and taking stock of his body of work toward reducing childhood poverty and seeing how he cemented his authority on childhood impacts, his extensive CV is worth taking a look at and it's available in his UCI profile on the web. Find out what all this study's about, baby's first years. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. First, Greg Duncan comes to us today from his office in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Greg Duncan. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Thank you. And we've already introduced you, so if people know, they need to go to your CV and see all the other things that I couldn't say. It's probably the most extensive CV I've ever seen, and I've seen over 11 years worth of them, for, for goodness sake. So first, Greg, congratulations on a phenomenal achievement in this early round of your findings. Could you tell us a little bit about the remarkable research design 
the unprecedented collaboration of researchers, and that's including adding a neuroscientist to the mix of analysts. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, We started 11 years ago, so it's really been a long time in the making. And the whole idea was to have a collaborative project with neuroscientists and economists and developmental psychologists. And the idea was to try to provide some uh, definitive answers about the extent to which poverty reduction would affect child well-being and what the pathways operating through the family were that supported whatever changes we might see. So we began enrolling mothers uh, in the in the study uh, in the summer of 2018. Uh, we recruited them from uh, birth hospitals uh, shortly after they had given birth uh, in four different places, uh, New York City, Twin Cities, Omaha, uh, and New Orleans. Uh, we were trying to get a Southern California site, but uh, that didn't work out. And when mothers uh, expressed some interest in the study, we gave them a background interview and, uh, and determined whether their income uh, was low enough. Uh, they needed to have income below the poverty line, the official poverty line, which is about $25,000 for a family of four. And uh, if so, then we asked them if they were interested in participating in a lottery, in effect, and if they were willing to do that, all of these were, were things that they uh, consented to after we explained what we were doing. We essentially flipped a coin and assigned them to, um, to either get $333 a month for almost four and a half years or $20 a month for uh, four and a half years. So everyone was given a debit card in the hospital, and it was either loaded up after we flipped this coin with the $333 uh, or the $20, and then every month after that, that amount was loaded up again, uh, and we sent out a text message telling them that the deposit had just been made. So the idea was to uh, be able to compare. Everyone got a debit card, so uh, they were the same in that respect. Uh, Everyone got a monthly payment, so they were the same in that respect, but the difference was that some were getting a total of almost $1,000 over the full four and a half years paid monthly, that's the $20, or a much larger amount, something like $18,000 paid monthly, that's the $333. And the idea was to track the the mothers and children uh, every year, so when the children became turned one, turned two, turn three, turn four. We're in the middle of our age three interviews now. Oh. We uh, asked the mothers quite a number of questions about what they were spending their, uh, their uh, total income on. We asked about stress. We asked about mental health. Any number of things that might be affected by the, the cash payments. And then at age one, we were also able to go into the households with portable EG machines and, uh, and measure electrical activity in the infant's brains. And that the data from that part of the data collection uh, were featured in this Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences article that was published a little over a week ago. So 
the stress then, so that's addressing whether they're like the trauma factor in a household setting, right? That's That would pick up that. Yeah, I mean, trauma is extreme stress, but, you know, the hypothesis was that straightened circumstances, living in poverty, creates enormous um, day-to-day problems of kind of making ends meet. You're often at risk of, of uh, being evicted, having utilities cut off. You know, if a child becomes sick or a relative becomes sick, then it's hard to sustain uh, a, a job, the kind of jobs that um, the participants in our sample are working in. So any number of these stressors, according to this kind of view in developmental psychology, might affect mental health, might affect the kind of sensitivity of parenting that we might observe, and in turn affect um, the the child's socio-emotional development. On the other hand, there's kind of the economic explanation of what money can buy, that poverty reduction in the form of these higher cash payments enables families to buy things, uh, to buy books, to buy toys, to buy safety devices, to have a a steadier supply of food across the month, you know, uh, meet rent payments. uh, So you name it. There are any number of ways in which that money might be spent that uh, would potentially benefit kids. So we wanted to know not only whether the kids were different in terms of their development, but also whether the family dynamics were Mm -hmm. playing out in different ways uh, that we could measure and then uh, compare the high-cash group and the low-cash groups uh, on. So reporting family dynamics, does that, did you get some pretty, are you getting real uh, vivid data there? I mean, vivid in terms of really detailed things. I mean, was there sort of a learning curve about how that's reported, recorded for your benefit? Yeah, well, we certainly drew upon the work of others when we could. So, you know, we developed a pretty long list of things that we wanted to ask about, uh, and then we went off to try to find publicly available versions of question sequences that would gather the information that we needed, and then adapted those for our own study. So there are, you know, it's a very standard measure. Uh, Depression, for example, a standard uh, index of anxiety, there's a hope scale, kind of a personal efficacy scale. So all these things have been in the literature, and we thought that they might be affected by the the higher cash payment. Uh, And so we included those in the interviews. And by the same token, on the income side, uh, the kind of expenditure questions about how much money did you spend last month on food, on rent, on toys, on books, you know, uh, safety, uh, car seats, things like that. Those are all kind of standard questions also. So we really needed to um, compile these questions and then somehow fit them into a questionnaire that um, that we could then administer to the participants in our study. Okay, so and so that did work. So you were able then, I, I understand that you did the due diligence on uh, what's the research say is how to get the information, and you found that the respondents, the participants in the baby's first years that you are getting really good data, really interesting insight from those factors that they're uh, experiencing in the household. Yeah. You know, I I hesitate to detail them. They, they have not been published in the same no, way. No, I'm not asking the, uh, you to do that right. But I, I just mean, study, right. but, it, but, you found, but your impression here is 
it's working. We're we're you are finding out what you need to find out, and it's and they're quite competent to relay the data that you need from their translating their household experiences and the you know the setting for the child for the baby that it's it's coming through loudly and clearly for you what's going on. Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, we we're so grateful to the, yes. the thousand mothers who are participating in the study, and we want to make sure that we are asking them culturally appropriate versions of questions, but also questions that in the end will provide the kind of reliable measurement of a particular scale that we want to measure. So, you know, there have been many, many studies of mothers of infants, and uh, over the years, uh, the the field has developed questions that seem to work well. Okay. And those are the kind of questions that we adopted for our study. And the one other factor I'm not sure I heard, Greg, was the environmental setting. Whether, um, you know, I mean, I'm obviously with New Orleans, I'm thinking in a New Orleans adjacent, the Cancer Alley, and there, uh, those confounding factors that might be, uh, have an impact on neural development, you know, in early childhood. So but was the environmental factor somehow figured into the, the workup? We did our recruiting in birth hospitals, as I mentioned. Yes. Um, and birth hospitals tend to service fairly large geographic areas. In New Orleans, for example, it was the greater metropolitan area of New Orleans. So the the mothers in our study are scattered around the metropolitan area. And one of the things that we have recorded is the residential address of the mother on each of the equate at, at the point of birth, at age one, age two, and so forth. And there's a tremendous amount of environmental information available. Okay. That if you know the, the address, you can link that uh, environmental information into, um, into the data set. So we plan to do that. We haven't, uh, we haven't yet done that. Because of various communities, and I've interviewed some of the activists that are sort of defending their public health in places like Wilmington, where refineries are, and I'm certainly thinking of those in the New Orleans uh, metropolitan area as well as the others. So, it, it, um, um, so it's it's a that's a work that's a, a factor in progress in terms of what how you're dissecting what are factors involved in this neural development. Uh, exactly. Okay. Right. So now to the, the the nutritional part. How, Greg, did you separate out food versus other factors influencing brain development? I mean, that's what this is all about. Uh, that's right. I mean, we one can ask about how much money did you spend last month on food. We also ask about uh, whatever the value of the food stamps they might have received amounted to. We ask about money spent eating out outside the household. Um, and then we ask questions about, you know, were there times in the last month when uh, your family um, or when you or your family didn't have enough food for all the meals, right? Were there times when you went hungry in order to provide to ensure that your children had uh, had enough food? And so those are the kind of questions that we're asking, and we'll be able to compare responses to those questions between the the high-cash group and the low-cash group. And I wanted to ask earlier, I guess since you bring up the two cash groups, so the $20 a month is kind of like a control group because it's such a a minor change in a a household budget. Um, That's right. You know, we we didn't want a 
a comparison group that was completely unfamiliar with the financial services sector. You know, one of the things, if you're giving $333 on a debit card, uh, quite a few of the moms, almost half, uh, had never had a debit card before. So we didn't want the high-cash moms to both get more cash as well as have a debit card and maybe learn something about, you know, good or bad about the financial system in the process. So we wanted both groups to get a debit card uh, and the only difference between monthly payments, both groups, but the only difference was the amount deposited on the debit card. Okay, thank you. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is UCI School of Education professor, and he's an, an economist as well, Greg Duncan, whose career in investigating the differential impacts of unconditional cash transfers on infant brain activity at its year one is where the uh, baby's first years, the findings are being released. And I just want to give a quick reference to the fellow researchers, Sonia Trollo-Renfrey, Molly Constanza, Catherine Magnuson, Lisa Genadian, <laughs> Hiroku Kazu Yoshikawa, Sarah Halpern-Meekin, Nathan Fox, and Kimberly Noble. I think Kimberly Noble's been one that's been out there a lot in the, the media covering all of this. So I guess 11 years ago, and leading up to that step taking, is the, what, were, what was the hypothesis that you were testing exactly? Well, I, I've been interested in these kind of general areas for a long time. I'm really a pretty old person. And my work goes back to the 1970s. Yes. And what has been frustrating uh, in this literature is that, you know, one group can uh, show that poverty uh, is associated with less school achievement, more less college attendance, more uh, behavior problems, worse health, you know, all sorts of uh, studies that show these associations and then claim, you know, it's poverty and only if we could only reduce poverty, we would make kids better off. But then uh, skeptics say, well, it's not poverty, it's single parenthood. You know, it's culture. It's, you know, any number of things that are associated with uh, poverty. And if you just have an association, you really can't distinguish between those kind of alternative explanations. So what you really need is a clinical trial, and a clinical trial where you flip a coin and randomly assign a larger or smaller amount to be given to families. And from a clinical trial, you can get a much stronger idea of what the causal impact is of poverty reduction on, you know, in this case, infant brain activity, but uh, also on food expenditures, on rent, you know, all sorts of things that we're, we're gathering. So it was really this, this idea that you needed to do this right. And to do it right, you know, by the time we're done collecting data, we're trying to get money to extend, um, it'll be probably a $20 million uh, investment, $8 million of which is payments to the moms. So, you know, it's a big operation. Um, we've raised money from, from the government, uh, from NIH. We've raised a lot of money from private foundations and philanthropists. Uh, Kim Noble, the leader of, uh, of this study, is very good at cultivating those kind of sources. But, you know, the whole group that you read off has literally been meeting weekly for the last 10 years, 11 wow. years, to wow. get this thing off the ground and then keep it flying. 
So it's a truly collaborative effort, and it's really been a, you know, one of the most uh, satisfying professional experiences of my career. Indeed, and that's why I'm so glad to have you on here to just take the longest format I can offer uh, in this hour with you today. And so the those funds that you talked about, the public and the private resources, so they were kind of a surrogate, I, maybe I'm uh, not using the most precise sort of label there, for what would become the latest child tax credit. So all of you in this group must have gotten pretty excited when Congress issued that substantial childhood tax credit. Yeah, when they did, I mean, that was part of the American Rescue Plan. Uh, we did not yet know what the results were. You know, our our payments uh, are similar in size. You know, it's right. It's four thousand a year, and uh, child tax credit is thirty six hundred for young kids and three thousand for older kids uh, per per child. Per child, that's per child. We just have one payment per family. Okay. Right. So that's that's one substantial difference. And the other difference, you know, academics always worry about these kind of things, but it's important, you know, to think about translating research into policy. We're not the government, right? And we handed them this debit card that had a logo that said, for my baby. And, you know, our preliminary data are showing that, indeed, uh, they're using it more, uh, the high cash group, more for their uh, babies or buying books and toys and things like that. So you you wonder to what extent the kind of message that you get from uh, this logo might differ from the kind of message that you get uh, if you're just getting the child tax credit payment monthly from the U.S. government. But you know, in many respects, it's very similar. And you know, it's it, it's, it was possible that we weren't going to find anything. So then we would have had to report. Well, maybe the the well. People might have inferred properly that maybe if people who support the child tax credit are really doing it because it, they think it'll help kids, and if we don't have any evidence that uh, that the kids in the two groups are really different, um, then the study might not support the child tax credit. Wow. <laughs> so I'm, that there's a lot there. Um, I I want to sort of like leave that there though, um, and it may, there may be more to sort. Of continue to impact there. But I, I wanted to break down a little bit about the the members of the household that are in charge of the budget. And, it, you know, Greg, it made me think of when, I think it was when, uh, I don't remember the name of the microfinancier in India that was sending those loans out, those micro loans to, they were heads of households, women heads of households. And they, this microfinancing enterprise made a distinction of the kind of budget decisions that female heads of households made versus what male heads of households decided on. Did you break that household factor down into how the, the money was being spent to, to track impacts on neural development? Yeah, that research finding is a more is a more general one. There was a study in the UK when their child benefit uh, switched from being a payroll payment to usually the father to a uh, a payment directly to the mother, and they found that expenditures uh, changed when you did that too. Our payments are to the the mother. I mean, we hand the mother the debit card. Uh, we tell her nothing about sharing uh, information that she's got this debit card with anybody. Uh, we do have a qualitative study that uh, is following more intensively uh, 80 of the families. 
And, you know, the stories that we hear from in, in that study, a lot of the moms aren't telling anyone. Uh, certainly not often. They're uh, extended uh, family. Sometimes the mothers are telling their mothers. Uh, sometimes, you know, if the father is, uh, is very much actively involved in part of the household, he, he learns about it. But by and large, uh, it's theirs, and they understand how important it is for them and, their, and the finances of their family. So they're protecting an asset. That's, that's what they're, if they don't disclose it to other members, then um, that's it's a really, what, how do you interpret that they're not disclosing that to really very many other people? Well, <laughs> I, you know, it's, one can think of different interpretations. Yes. I mean, it, 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 this is such a precious resource yeah. to mothers that I think that it's valuable for them in accomplishing their goals that they have for their families to have as much control over this money as possible. And once, you know, word gets out to an extended family, then there might be demands uh, from some of them for part of it. So you can imagine a lot of kind of leakage that might come from those kind of demands. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, families in our study are, uh, are in, well, all low-income families are in tough uh, financial situations, um, just making ends meet. So I think it's important for mothers to have control over the finances in order for them to kind of accomplish their budget goals and their, their broader family goals. But, you know, it occurs to me that merchants will see changes in their consumption, though, right? So that, that will eventually disclose they have more assets, they have more cash on hand. Well, merchants, you say, I suppose, I suppose that's true. You know, we, we did get permission from most of the mothers to track the, the charges on the card. And, okay. you know, a lot of them were, well, for maybe 40% of the money was taken out of ATM machines. So we really couldn't track how that was spent. Um, and, a lot. you know, people might see that there's more cash there. But in terms of actually spending in stores, a lot of it was at big box stores, you know, where you're not going to get anyone uh, consistently recognizing. Ah, so if they go to Costco to get a lot of, um, I mean, more bulk items, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that big box. Um, Amazon, you know, people are doing uh, online purchases. So uh, there's a lot of uh, uses of the debit card that aren't really being picked up by anybody. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting, and that's that's important though because that disclosure could make that could confound that control that you're talking about. That's so important for them to maintain autonomy in their um, in their decisions. Yeah, and time. actually, if you think about comparisons to the child tax credit, yep, that's a much more public. Yes, sense, it's very right? public. Everybody, everybody knows the moms are getting that. So you could argue that those kind of problems are likely to be much more serious with the child tax credit than with our our debit cards. Wow. Well, I and I wanted to mention that our congressional member representing the 45th, now it's now the 47th, but uh, and and Katie Porter w- attended a sort of a press conference last summer at a community center that benefited from all kinds of uh, transfers and contributions and things like that. And I guess that's the that's the conundrum is that to be public about how it works so people know the you know, that there's these benefits incurred, but but as you said, if you're telegraphing there's this money around then it does 
sort of reduce the control they have over that budget. So, but that's a that's a separate study, and that might be one that your maybe your PhD students could be are some of them working. They could take that up. Yeah, that's maybe. for them. I, I think I'll pass on that. Pass on? Yeah, no, no, because you have such the body of work with dealing with the, right. the poverty reduction for that. So. You are bringing nuance that's, that people are going to have to pay attention to, that you you saw an increase just, and I mean, you were, you were surprised that various members of this research group, that the neural activity that was a, from, a, was it a 71 to 82 percent kind of increase in, I'm on, I call it neural activity, but please tell me what is the better expression for that. And so talk about just how amazing it was just to see it in the first year. And then we'll talk about how this nuance translates into people that can't, they can't, they won't be able to negate just the, the benefits of that kind of cash transfer. Sure. Let me start out by saying I'm an economist, as you uh, introduced me, and not a neuroscientist. But, uh, you know, I was able to participate. We had pretty much weekly analysis meetings for a whole year prior to the publication. So I was able to get in on um, on all of that and kind of work through the data as they were being as they were being analyzed so as I understand it well and I think this is true uh, you know all of our brains generate electrical activity across circuits uh, these circuits develop uh, pretty rapidly especially for infants and, uh, and toddlers and it's possible to measure that electrical activity by putting a little uh, cap with electrodes, kind of microphones, uh, on babies' heads. It's very non-invasive. I mean, some kids will never have a hat put on them, uh, and they're not going to have these little uh, EEG caps put on. Uh, but most of the one-year-olds were quite willing to do that. And then they just sit for uh, up to five minutes on their mother's laps, and we have some kind of quiet things that keep... It has to be quiet, right? You can't fire them up for... Yeah, exactly. It has to be the exactly. same activity every time. Right. So uh, on these caps, there are 20 of these uh, electrode microphones that are kind of listening. I mean, it's not really sound, but they're listening and recording electrical activity. And those 20 different electrodes are providing the, the raw data that in turn are divided up into kind of low-frequency electrical power, higher-frequency electrical power. And that amount of power in the, at the different frequency levels is really the heart of our analysis. So high-frequency power uh, has been associated with improved kind of thinking and learning uh, measurement several years later in children. Um, it's just an association, but we were looking to see whether the kids in the high-cash group would be displaying more of this high-frequency power relative to kids in low-frequency power. And that's essentially what we found, especially uh, especially in the, the frontal part of the brain, uh, which is where you'd expect it. It's kind of the prefrontal cortex. And that difference is what is kind of the key finding in our, uh, in our study. Uh, and, you know, I can talk about the size of the difference. It's about, you can think of it as, well, in the paper, uh, we talked about if you're, let's say you're standing in a line of 100 people and you're 50th, right? right. So being, you know, this difference uh, in the high cash, low cash group amounts to moving eight places up in line, 
right? Not a, a huge amount, but a, you know, a, a significant amount. It's one direction. <laughs> right. It's not and back in the line, yeah. So another way to think about it is, you know, it's, it's like 20 SAT points. A lot, of, a lot of parents know very mm-hmm. much what an SAT point is worth. All right. So 20 SAT points. Another way to think about it is that, you know, if you look at math scores uh, at the beginning of kindergarten between black and white kids, this difference that we found is about a third of the gap uh, in math scores at school entry between black and non-black kids. So it's modest in some sense, but it's, it's, a, it's a significant amount. And... You know, all we know right now is uh, is what that difference in electrical power looks like. We are expecting, based on these kind of association studies, that as the families continue to get the payments at age four, that's when we're going to uh, bring them into labs, university labs in each of the four sites, and then EEG will be assessed again. And we'll also be assessing a lot of behavioral measures of school readiness and executive function and all the kind of things that, you know, cognitive and behavioral uh, development at age four, which you really can't do at age one. No. And the age one findings lead us to be optimistic that we'll find things at age four, but it's by far no guarantee. So the findings are really very exciting. It's kind of a new way of looking at things. But what they practically mean in terms of these kids' lives, three years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, uh, we'll have to see. So it's on maybe the, what are, not that we're going to um, brew a steel thunder here or uh, sort of prematurely disclose, but do the neurologists and psychologists on the team, do they anticipate there's a cumulative impact and a cumulative uh, sort of progress being made if those, that, you know, 20 points is in the first year that maybe there could be even a greater increase in successive years? Um, There could be. We'll see. You know, I think we very much expected, one of the ways of thinking about it is, what do you know about your college experience after only the freshman year? Right? That's one way of thinking about it. We're, We're going to be making these payments for four years. We've only done one year of payments for the, the data in this article. So we don't really know what the full impact is. And certain things that we've talked about, like spending on books and toys, that could take place very quickly. But something like you know improving mental health, uh, lowering depression, uh, anxiety, things like that, that probably takes more than a year of steady pay- payments to bring about. So we really had expected to have a much more definitive reading on these mental health and expenditure pathways at age two or age three after, uh, you know, more than just a year of payments. Uh, and same, same thing for uh, child outcomes, that you would expect a cumulative effect of this income advantage to be associated with increasing differences between the two groups. So that's what we're expecting to see, but you know, we'll, it's not guaranteed at all from what we have so far, but we're very excited to see if it, it works out that way. So, and, and this nuance is so important for the public health and, you know, the whole national budget debates on, you know, this is sort of like takes apart the, the return on this kind of investment and, and your whole body of research is that it shows up 
in all kinds of factors in adult life later, how these kinds of allowances made earlier on that will improve on education, job productivity, and all these kinds of things, uh, incarceration possibilities. So it's just my listeners hear me bring up zero sum all the time. And this sort of debunk zero sum is if you, if you offer unconditional cash transfers that you are going to reduce, I don't know how, what magnitude uh, on the other end of what the society is going to have to pay for not providing those kinds of cash transfers. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> well, it, there are a number of studies in addition to ours, um, you know, showing, for example, what happened when the food stamp program started, what happened when the uh, earned income tax credit became more generous. And they all point to, to benefits for children. But, you know, with food stamps, the money has to be spent in the first instance on food with the earned income tax credit. Uh, you have to have work income in order to get that. So it's never a pure study like ours is. Right. But, you know, just putting this in a larger perspective, the whole debate about welfare reform in the 1990s, about the earned income tax credit now, um, you know, battle lines are drawn um, between people who worry about the costs and people who extol the benefits, right? The benefits are the kind of things we're talking about the potential costs are things like uh, a re- incentive for the mothers to be engaged in paid employment. You know, there are stories, and they surfaced with Build Back Better, that that mothers or adults in general who just get money are going to use it unwisely on temptation goods, you know, things like alcohol and tobacco and so forth. So, you know, we're actually going to be measuring those things in our study. We've been tracking uh, employment uh, we ask questions about how much money did you spend on alcohol, tobacco, and so forth, because you know you can't you can't dismiss those kind of arguments just out of hand. They're really empirical questions that need to be investigated. So we'll be providing, I hope, fairly definitive evidence on the extent to which those things are true. So in the New York Times piece that was published last Tuesday, I mean, it was maybe out earlier in electronic versions, but uh, Robert Rector and Angela Ricciti were talking about these kinds of incentives that you're talking about, the sort of pernicious incentives, that disincentive to work. But do you have any particular reactions to what they had to say versus uh, what was all covered generally, you know, on the study? I mean, well, do you have a ready answer for what they're saying? This isn't working. Yeah, I mean, the answer is, let's see. As a... I, I try to be fairly neutral when I think about what the possibilities might be. And, you know, my research now is focusing more on these benefits. Right. But it's not the cost side that, that they're stressing. It's As I say, it's not something you can dismiss out of hand. So we have tried to include in our survey questions that will enable us to, to measure work effort, both for the mom, for the family, Time use and the you know is the mother spending more time uh, with the child reading and telling stories and things like that. So we're trying to gather the data that will enable us to be able to uh, to say well you know there's there is a little bit of reduction in mom's work uh, or you know there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, any of this money is being used on alcohol and cigarettes and things like that. Um, so stay tuned because we very much hope to, and I, I hope by maybe six months from now we'll have some 
publications that address um, those issues. But, you know, I want to emphasize you always have these these battle lines drawn with people, you know, sometimes with good intentions, worried about uh, incentive effects from different programs. And it's important to do the research to see whether or not those kind of ideas hold up. And they might hold up to some extent or they might not hold up. Uh, we'll see. But uh, pretty soon, actually. These two, though, as I mentioned, they're with the American Enterprise Institute. And so I'm not sure how intellectually honest they are, though, to talk about cost further down the line, you know, the lifespan of an individual. And so those costs are pretty extensive, but I don't see them bringing that up. They're looking at it in the window of that, the moment the expenditures, a public outlay is made and not uh, that public outlay in incarceration, reduced income, lowered tax receipts from reduced income from those, uh, you know, early childhood uh, impacts. Yeah, but, well, you know, different people in both conservative and liberal think tanks either stick to the evidence or don't. And, you know, someone like Angela Rashidi is is quite good with evidence. Um, But, you know, we have not shown in our study that there are these long-term benefits, uh, nor have we shown there are these long-term costs. So, you know, at this point, it's a fair-minded question to what extent are these two sides right? And uh, you can't just dismiss out of hand concerns from conservatives. You really need to investigate them. And that's why your data is going to be super, super powerful and all. So I understand you're maintaining the neutrality and, you know, overtly and publicly and, but I'm going to sort of force the topic here of the, what your role is, though, in, I mean, you've been, you have some speaking engagements and all that, um, but what are, what's your role as an advocate for policies for transfers like this? Well, I'm, I'm trying to be fairly neutral. Uh, You know, one of my activities before this came out in the last few years was directing a National Academy of Sciences panel on programs and policies that would reduce child poverty in the short run. And we came out with a report. You know, it it proposed ideas that should be considered, including a child allowance, but also a lot of other uh, kind of policy proposals. You know, and then we tried to, to crank out what the implications might be for reducing child poverty and cost and things like that. So, you know, with that and with this, I really am trying to be um, – someone who supplies information and and then lets the advocates, you know, do what they do or let the naysayers do what they do. But to have policymakers, you know, congressional staff and members as well, be informed by what these findings look like, you know, both the good and the bad, uh, that that's really, I think, my role as an academic. And I'm, I'm not an advocate uh, in any substantial sense. You know, if if I if, if it turned out that that this experiment was showing pretty uniformly null impacts on things that we were expecting to see impacts, I, I would not hesitate to say, well, you know, at the end of the day, if in putting in place a child tax credit expansion is done with the hopes that it's going to produce changes in families, then you know we're not finding much evidence that that's going to be the case. There are other arguments for it, like. Uh, <laughs> Kids shouldn't have miserable childhoods because they're living in poverty. 
but the the real uh, substantive arguments in this debate are on the long-term impacts. Are our kids with transfers going to grow up and achieve more and and have more productive labor market careers and you know pay social security benefits for people who are in our uh, in generations that are retiring. So I'm trying to be a, a neutral force delivering uh, the best information I can. So the I guess the advocacy is it's sort of raising the nuance for sort of holding people accountable for claims they're making. I mean that that's that's an, an, a role I would interpret where the advocacy is there. And and so I had a a, a moniker for the the findings as they're coming out in the terms of a social. Infrastructure legislation would be build back brainier. Has anybody already talked about that? <laughs> nope, you're the first. Uh, I'm writing that it, down. It's build back brainier. So, well, I'm wanna. I need to close here so we can. Uh, let's. I wanna thank you so much, Greg Duncan, for for being on Ask a Leader this morning. This has been so instructive. I've enjoyed it immensely. My guest was UCI School of Education Professor Greg Duncan, whose career in investigating the different impacts of these unconditional cash transfers on infant brain activity, year one, and they'll be followed all the way to year four. And I'm quickly gonna run the names again of the team, Sonia Trollerenvi, Molly A. Costanzo, Catherine Magnuson, Lisa Janisian, Hiro Kazu, Yoshikawa, Sarah Halpern, Meekin, Nathan Fox, and Kimberly Noble. Well, that's my wrap. The next programming is going to be another new fresh show. Talk with you next week. Welcome back, Ann Eaters, to your in-class experience. Be careful, be safe out there. Thank you for listening, everyone.